Good morning. As I mentioned in February when I preached, I wanted to go through Proverbs when I had the opportunity uh, to proclaim God's word on our Sunday worships. And so in February, I preached from the beginning of Proverbs 1, uh, the first seven verses. And today, I'd like to finish up this chapter with the last verses that Randy read for us this morning. As I'm looking this last week at Proverbs 1, verses 20 through 33, I was thinking about times when I've been in a new city. And perhaps you've been in that situation yourself. If you've been in a new city and you you didn't know your way around. In many situations like this, I, I don't mind exploring. In fact, I enjoy it. I, I like to see the architecture. I like to explore around uh, and walk uh, generally uh, in the city. But the first time that I was in Moscow, I didn't want to venture out on my own. I didn't know my way around. I, I don't speak Russian. I don't read Russian. And Rightly or wrongly, I wasn't certain whether I would get help when I asked someone uh, for directions. Uh, I didn't know whether their uh, advice or their directions would be helpful or, or harmful to me. So the first time that I was in Russia, I hired a guide, and it was someone who worked for the Slavic Gospel Association, and he was so patient when we lagged behind him getting onto the subway train and, and when we were in Red Square and there was a, a, a large group of people and it, it was almost as if we got swallowed up in this group of people. He was loud calling out to us and calling my name so that I could see where he was. And my girls will tell you when we hike or when we walk, uh, I'm a fast walker. They call me a fast walker. And, and I couldn't keep up with our guide. He was a really fast walker. And yet he was always looking for us and making sure that we stayed with him because he was our guide. Solomon's advice to his son, whom he loves, is that he needs a guide. And the guide is wisdom, God's wisdom. All of Proverbs are a divine imperative for your life. They're not optional. They're not a good idea. They're not one among many. They are God-breathed. In our portion of Proverbs 1, we see wisdom is personified. It's given human characteristics. But it is never separate from God. It is of God. It is the wisdom of God. Do you remember what wisdom is? When I preached the first part of this proverb, we describe wisdom as skillful living in the ways of God. Skillful living in the ways of God. And it begins with the fear of the Lord. And Kirk talked about the fear of the Lord last Sunday. These words of Solomon to his son are not just advice. They are the very words of God. The same is true for us. We need More than advice. We need God's wisdom. We need God to tell us how to skillfully live in his ways. Wisdom is this guide. The main point of this text of scripture. Walk God's beautiful path with God. Or gradually die from the rotten fruit along your own road. Walk God's beautiful path with God or gradually die from the rotten fruit along your own road. 
This is going to, what we're going to look at in these verses. The first, the first point that I'd like to cover is from verses 20 through 22. You can easily find wisdom. And I'm so thankful for that. How do I learn the ways of God? You can easily find wisdom. Okay, so how do I learn the ways of God? In verse 20, we see that wisdom is not hidden. It's not hard to find. In fact, it is in the open, in the street, in the public square. Wisdom is in the noisy street, in the place that is bustling with people. At the entrance of the gate of the city. This is the place where everyone passes. Anyone who wants to go into the city has to go through there. Everyone who exits has to walk through this place where wisdom is shouting. It's where the court is held. It's where transactions are conducted because it's public and there's witnesses. For those of you who've been with us to Israel, you remember when we were in the cities in the northern part of Israel in Dan, and we saw the gate to the city, the entrance to the city where everyone walked through, and there were the seats there. This is where the judges sat. This is where the public officials sat, out in the open, and everyone would congregate around them because it was such a public place. Wisdom is here. In the open, in the midst of where everyone is, shouting. Why is wisdom in the street? This is where the people are. That's the first reason. And secondly, the ways to God are not hidden by God. They are not reserved for society's elite. They're not reserved for a spiritual elite. Skillful living in the ways of God are not learned through through scholarship at Harvard or or UW-Madison. Skillful living in the ways of God are not learned through seminary or only by going to seminary. Hear what Paul wrote to the church at Laodicea in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, which is in Laodicea. He writes this to the church at Laodicea. Colossians 2, verses 1 through 3. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul is writing, he's writing in the book of Colossians, and he's writing about the church in Laodicea, and he's writing to encourage the Laodiceans' heart. And what does he encourage them about? He says they have wealth. And he says what that wealth is. Their wealth is the understanding and the knowledge of Christ. The understanding and the knowledge of Christ himself. They learned the way to God. Jesus is the way to God for Jew and for Gentile, for Jew and for those who are not Jews. God remembers your sin no more. You walk with him. You know him. You are in the presence of his glory. He is the treasure. He is the treasure that wisdom wisdom leads to. Christ 
is the revealed mystery of the way to enjoy the treasure of God himself. Paul encourages the Laodicean church in their understanding of Christ because Christ is the way to God the Father. Paul encourages the Laodicean church. Jesus rebukes the Laodicean church in Revelation 3. Jesus says they loved their life. They loved what they had, so they had need of nothing more. They were content. Jesus rebukes them. You do not know that you are wretched. You do not know that you are miserable. You do not know that you are poor. You do not know that you are blind. You do not know that you are naked. Come to me, Jesus says, so that you may be rich. Come to me so that you may have white garments to clothe yourself so that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. Jesus said, receive eye salve so that you may see. Jesus calls unbelievers to salvation so that their sins will be remembered no more. And so that they may sit with him. Jesus calls believers to stop loving their life. To stop living our life saying, I have Jesus for salvation and I do not need or want more of him. In verse 22 of our proverb, Proverb 1, Solomon rebukes with a question. How long? How long? How long will you love being simple-minded? How long will you delight in your scoffing? How long will you love being foolish, hating knowledge? His question should dig at you. It should dig out your root of pride. But we want to grow in our pride, don't we? We're prideful when we choose our own way. Then we magnify pride when the wisdom of God confronts us and we say, I've considered that. And I chose what was best for me. I considered God's wisdom and I chose what was best for me. Or we don't go to God. We don't go to him at all. Because we don't want to be confronted. You won't say this out loud, but this is your heart in those times. I rely on myself in my choice. And I rely on myself in justifying my choice. Solomon addressed three different groups in this verse. The naive, the scoffers, the fools. And the source of the problem It's not cognitive. Their their knowledge isn't lacking. There's not some deficiency there. This is a spiritual problem. This is a spiritual problem. We all rebel against God in unbelief. All of us. Some of you do not believe in Jesus for the salvation of your soul. This is unbelief in salvation. The rest of us, we do not believe we need Jesus every moment of every day. Or said another way, we do not believe God that our greatest joy is found only in Jesus. This is unbelief in sanctification. 
A.W. Tozer wrote this. Unbelief says some other time, but not now. Some other place, but not here. Some other people, but not us. Faith says now, here, me. Unbelief whispers to you, you do not need to have an urgency for God. Belief shouts to you, you need to have urgency for God now. The wisdom of God shouts to you right where you are. Wherever you are with God right now, His wisdom shouts to you. Will you follow? Will you follow the beautiful path of God by faith? Or will you meander on your own road, trusting yourself as being greater than God? There's a reality that lies ahead on God's path and on your road. And it's the second point of our text. So first, you can easily find God's wisdom. Second, you act, God acts. And there's two aspects to this. First, in verse 23, turn to God and know him. Turn to God and know him. Verse 23 Turn to God, God's wisdom. Every time that I enter a room of people, I am able to understand the biggest problem in the room. And I am thankful to God that he has given me this insight. Every time that I am with someone, I am able to see the biggest problem. It is my sinful, selfish heart. I don't say this in some kind of false humility. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Take the log out of your own eye before you consider the speck in your brother's eye. The size of the object in the eye is proportional to the size of the issue of the heart. I have the biggest issue. The plank in my eye, the sin in my heart is big. And I must deal with it first before I can help anyone else. I can visualize each of you nodding your Heads in agreement about my log, maybe. Or at least about the truth of the log and the speck. You're nodding in agreement. But this is my concern. Later this afternoon, or maybe right after we're done with the service and you're making breakfast or brunch or lunch, you'll become angry impatient and bitter because you're not getting what you want when you want it in the way that you want it. You're selfish and you deceive your heart so you reverse log and speck to speck and log. You can self-justify your anger, your impatience, and your bitterness. You allow yourself to settle into a pattern of anger and impatience for a while. And later, maybe you reconcile or not. Maybe you just let time pass by and And you go on to the next things of life. Yeah, I was angry before, but now I'm happy, so be happy with me. Like it never happened. Like your anger and impatience 
never occurred. I don't want you to be just well taught in the scriptures so that you know the teaching of log and speck. I don't want you to just nod your head during the service. I want your heart to be transformed. I want you to live the truth that you know. I want you to be broken over your sinful selfishness. Repent. Cling to Jesus Christ in prayer and put on loving humility. Thinking of others more highly than yourself. Having a humility before God, your heavenly father. Your selfish pride is the biggest spiritual issue in every room you enter. This is true for me. And it's true for you. This is why Solomon counsels his son the way that he does in verse 23. Reproof is the word in the NASB. It means rebuke, reprimand, correction. Solomon gives this counsel because his son's direction needs correction. Wisdom, the beautiful path of God, calls out to you and invites you to turn to its rebuke, to its correction. Selfish pride is why a person does not turn to God for correction. This clause in verse 23 is not expressing a wish or a want. Let me give you an example. In Proverbs 27, verse 23, Solomon writes, Know the condition of your flocks and pay attention to your herds. Know the condition of your flocks and pay attention to your herds. It's a straightforward statement. You should know the condition of your flocks. Or for us, you should know the condition of your household. Straightforward statement. That's not what's going on in our clause in verse 23. In our verse 23, the clause is conditional. It's an if-then statement. If you turn to my reproof, then I will pour out my spirit on you. Kyle and Delich write, if you turn and place yourself under my reproof and permit yourself to be warned against your wickedness, then wisdom will cause her words to flow in you. If you turn and place yourself under my reproof and permit yourself to be warned against your wickedness, then my spirit will be poured out. Look at this glorious promise in the middle part of the verse. I will pour out my spirit on you. I will pour out my spirit on you. What does this mean for New Testament believers? What does this mean for us who are New Testament believers on this side of Pentecost? 1 John chapter 2, verses 27. We see what John the Apostle expressed in this epistle. 1 John 2, verse 27. John writes, As for you, the anointing, and he means of the Holy Spirit, as for you, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which you received from God, abides in you, and you have no need for anyone else to teach you, but the Spirit's anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as he has taught you, you abide in him. This is what John is saying. If you abide in God, in the word of God, the ways of God, 
the wisdom of God, if you abide in God, if you turn to him for correction, if you turn to him for the transformation of your heart, his spirit, which is in you as a believer, will cause your heart to know his word. And it will cause your heart to conform, to transform more and more to Jesus' heart. Which will allow your heart to know your heavenly father himself. If you abide in God, then transformation of your heart will occur. And you will know your heavenly father. You act, and God acts. Turn to God so your heart can be changed, so that you may know him. Turn to God, then you will know him. The second part of this point, you act and God acts, we see in verses 24 through 31. You act and God acts. Turn to yourself and no misery. So the first part, turn to God and know him. The second, turn to yourself and no misery. Verse 24. God calls and you refuse. He stretches out his hand and you do not pay attention. You neglect his counsel. You do not want his correction. You choose yourself, your ways. You want what you want. You want to be happy. You want to enjoy yourself. You want to feel important. You want to have a good reputation. You want to be perfect. You want to have peace. You want to be in control. You want companionship, friendship, a spouse. You want a spouse who loves you. You want a spouse who cares for you. You want to avoid conflict. You don't want to be labeled, rejected, to suffer. You don't want anyone to know you're a sinner. You want any of these things. You want any of them so badly. You are willing to choose your own way. Because if you chose God's way, he might say what you want is not good for you. And you can't bear being without your want. So you choose to follow your own road. Even if that means you will eat rotten fruit. You're so headstrong in what you want. And you can't imagine being without it. You're willing to pursue it even if it means you'll be eating rotten fruit. Selfish pride, unwilling to turn to God's correction. One commentator writes of verse 24, sometimes the refusal is conscious and calculated. I called and you refused. Other times it's indifferent and inattentive. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention whether through conscious rejection or distracted indifference, the rejection of God's wisdom is costly. Are one of these true of you? Conscious rejection? Distracted indifference? Both are mile markers of your own road. You reject, God acts. Verse 26. Another commentator rightly points out, 
in verse 26 that God's laughter here is not giddy. He does not laugh at the suffering of fools. But he does rejoice in the defeat of evil. And so do we. Proverbs 11.10 The whole city celebrates when the godly succeed. They shout for joy when the wicked die. The whole city celebrates when the godly succeed. They shout for joy and they shout for joy when the wicked die. Not only just rejoicing at the defeat of evil, but God laughs in the amazement of the stupidity of fools. It's like God says, I am offering you everything that is good and beautiful, even my own son. And you continue to push me aside? You must be joking. Verse 26, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. Roy Ortland, Ray Ortland, in talking about this portion of the proverb, quoted C.S. Lewis and said, There are only two kinds of people in the end those who say to God, Thy will be done, your will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. If you continue to reject God and follow your own road, he will eventually give you over to your will. Hardness of heart inherits itself. Wisdom shouts to you. Have an urgency for God. Do you think that you have more wisdom than God? Do you think that you know what is better for you than God? Now the hard question. Do you turn, submit, Humble yourself, seek his correction, and follow him even when it costs you what you want so deeply in the moment. The naive, the scoffer, the fool, they do not. And note what lies ahead on their road. Misery upon misery. Yes, they, they will know calamity and dread, storms, whirlwinds, distress, anguish. That's what Solomon says they will face. But that's not their real misery. It's verse 28. Then you will call on me, but I will not answer. You will seek me even diligently, but you will not find me. You will call for wisdom. You will call to God for his wisdom. You will call to God and he will withhold himself from you. Do not wait. Call to God today. Call to God now. Turn to him. This isn't a one-time choice between choosing to walk God's beautiful path of wisdom or your own road of rotten fruit. It's a multitude of choices. Each day, day after day after day, how long? When I ride my mountain bike in the woods, especially on well-worn trails, there's sections where you ride in the same spot and it's caused a rut. 
And over time, it's gotten some deep, uh, so deep, some of these ruts, that they almost seem like they reach out and grab your tire and just pull your wheels into that rut. Ruts of sin. Ruts of walking our own road. Ruts of talking about change. Ruts of thinking what is untrue, impure, unlovely. This is my concern for my brothers and sisters in Christ. This is my concern for you. Not that you have ruts. I do too. My concern is what happens when you get into the rut. That you do not quickly turn in repentance, seeking God's wisdom, his rebuke, his spirit to transform your heart. How long do you ride in the rut before you crash? And is this a pattern in your heart, in your life? This is my concern. What if you knew that today was your last chance to turn to God before he said verse 31 to you? You will eat the fruit of your own road. Would you make different choices today? Perhaps some of your hearts are so hardened in pride that you say, no, bring it on. I'll, I'll chart my own course and I'll live my own way. I hope this is not true. Wisdom has been shouting in the street. She's lifting her voice. She's crying out, not hiding, visible at the entrance of the gates. And she's shouting and crying out for so long that the question is asked, how long? How long will you continue to refuse and neglect wisdom? What are the areas in your life that you've been choosing your own way. You have a pattern of following your own will and refusing the outstretched hand of your heavenly father. How long? How long will you continue? You can easily find wisdom. You act and God acts. Our third point, you choose, wayward or secure. You choose wayward destruction or secure life, verses 32 and 33. You have a roaring fire in the fireplace, and you tell a two-year-old not to touch the hot glass. We all know what happens, right? Why did you tell them not to touch it? Even when they want to, and you know they want to, and they throw a tantrum, why did you tell them not to touch the glass? It's for their good, right? To protect them. So they're not harmed. We love them, and so we care for them, and we want to protect them. Why does the two-year-old keep going back to the hot glass? Even after you've told them not to, and amazingly, sometimes even after they touch it and they burn their hand, they still go back to it. Why does God give commands? And why does God give principles in the scriptures? To oppress to keep you from things 
that are good for you? To keep you from things that you really want? Or for your good? To protect you because he loves you? The crazy question is why we who are not two-year-olds keep going back to the hot glass. In verse 32, God warns us that rebellion against him is waywardness. It will harm us, it will destroy us, and it will eventually kill us. This warning is throughout the scriptures. And we need to keep hearing it. Because we keep choosing to stand in front of the fire thinking about touching the hot glass. We're tempted to believe the lie that Adam and Eve gave into. In Genesis 3, we know that Satan tempted Eve. He deceived her. She dwelt on that deception and considered the fruit on the tree and continued to look at it and doubt grew within her. Deception dwelt on leads to doubt. Deception leads to doubt. What was the deception in Genesis 3? That there was another way to satisfaction. That there was another way to pleasure other than God's way. What was Eve's doubt? So she was deceived that there's another way to pleasure other than God's way. And then it led to doubt. Two things that she doubted. She doubted, number one, God's good character. She doubted God's good character. God is holding out on me. There is something good, this fruit, and God told me I can't have it. He's holding out on me. She doubted God's good character, that there's something good that God would not give to her. And so she took it. Second thing, that was Eve's doubt. God's sovereign ability to bring death and destruction. Eve doubted God's sovereign ability to bring death and destruction. He warned Adam about this. If you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Eve doubted that God would do this or that he would be able to do it. She doubted that God had the ability or that he would do this. Do you know where you are deceived? That's a tough question, isn't it? Because of the nature of deception. Do you know where your deception is leading you to doubt God's good character and his ability to bring discipline, death, and destruction to you on your own road? The insidious aspect of sin is that it deceives. Sin deceives you, and it deceives you at the very core of your being, in your heart, in your soul. There's a deception of sin. And on your own, on your own, you will be wayward. But you don't have to be on your own. In Hebrews 4, verse 12, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to pierce the deepest parts of your heart so you can discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart. You you don't have to be on your own. You have the Spirit of God and you have the Word of God. So you don't need to be deceived. You don't need to doubt. Instead of being wayward in deception, you can be secure in discernment. Instead of being waywardly deceived on your own, you can be secure in discernment with 
God, your heavenly Father. Discernment only comes from God through his spirit using his word. Now maybe you're saying to yourself, Brian, this is too strong. You're too far to the extreme. I don't hate God or his wisdom. I'm not as good as I want to be, but I don't hate him. And, and it's not like I don't have a fear of the Lord. I do. Just not to the degree that you're talking about. Or, or maybe not to the level that I want to be at, but I, I do want to be there. In Job 21, verses 13 through 15, Job is looking at those who appear to have it all. Job is, is looking out and he, he's seeing people who have prosperity and he's seeing people who have a big family, a, a nice house, and they have no fear of what's going on. But this is also true of this, these people that Job is looking at. They want no part of God. They don't even want to know his ways, let alone walk in them. And they ask this question. These people who want no part of God ask this question. Why should we serve him? What's in it for us? And this phrase, what would we gain by calling on him? What would we gain by turning to God? What would we gain by spending time with God? What's in it for us? I have this life. Now to be sure, these are people who wanted no part of God. But isn't this a question that's in all of our hearts? What will I gain by calling on him now? You have a choice in how you spend your time. In the evening, how late you stay up, knowing it will impact when you wake up in the morning and how you wake up in the morning. You have a choice in how you plan your weekends. How much time you spend on video games, social media, Netflix, doing projects, participating in sports, working, crafts. What what, what did I miss? You have a choice in what you allow your mind to dwell on and how much time you spend dwelling on it. Is it true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise? How much time do you allow your mind to dwell on these things? So this is a question you and I answer with how we spend our time. What will I gain by spending time with God now versus doing X? I mean, he'll be there later, right? He'll be there tomorrow, right? He'll be there on Sunday. Judges 10 Verse 14, go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. Where do you turn as a pattern of your life in times of peace? Where do you turn as a pattern of your life in times of distress. Will you call on God? Will you call on him now? What will I really gain by calling on him? You gain him. 
the presence of his glory. You gain fellowship with your heavenly father who is near and kind and good and holy. You gain a deepening love with your father. This is what you gain. Will you turn to him? Will you call on him? Wisdom is easily found. Turn to God and know him. So you will be secure in him. Will you pray with me? Father, I do thank you that your wisdom is easily found. We don't have to we don't have to search for it like some kind of hidden treasure that only one in a million can find. Everyone who calls on your name will find you. And so, Father, I pray. I pray for all of those who are with us this morning, who will be tuning in during the course of this week, that they would turn to you and know you. Forgive me, Father. Forgive us for the times that we have relied on our own selfish desires when we've justified pursuing our own road. It is true this is part of our sanctification, but I hate it, Father. I hate it. I hate walking my own road because of where it leads, away from you and nearness with you and fellowship with you and joy in you. I hate it, Father. Grow me in walking your beautiful path with you. Grow my, my awareness, my vision, my love for your glory and your presence. Grow a love and a desire for being near to you within my soul and for each one of us. I pray this, Father. This is, the beautiful path is the good path and it's a path that we desire. Help us to walk it faithfully. Amen.